Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for all that you planned to show us this morning in your word. I pray you'd open our hearts, you'd free our minds of other distractions so that we could learn from you and grow this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like we talked about in the past, Paul and Barnabas had gone to Galatia, but it's hard to know that because it doesn't call it that in Acts. Um, there's these different cities that make up the region of Galatia, and they, and they go there, and they've planted these churches, and then they left again and moved on, and over time, false teachers came in and taught false doctrine, trying to convince the Gentiles that they had to follow Jewish law to be saved including all the males had to be circumcised on the eighth day and all of that. And these false teachers, they had cast doubt on Paul's apostleship in order to gain credibility. And so Paul has spent time in these recent chapters defending his apostleship, defending his gospel. And so a few weeks ago, we started looking at Paul's apostleship and message explained. Then the next week was Paul's apostleship and message uh, confirmed. And then last week was justification by faith in Christ alone. As Paul discussed how he was equal with the apostles, so much so that he, so that he could oppose Peter publicly because he was their equal as an apostle. And now that Paul has sufficiently defended himself, he returns to the main issue at hand, the fact that these Galatians had returned to a false teaching, a false gospel, and it begins in verse 1 by saying, You foolish Galatians. Um, however, this isn't the typical word for foolish. It might sound like he's being very harsh here. You might think he's calling them morons or stupid. There's actually a different Greek word for that. Often when you see the word um, foolish in the Bible, the Greek word is moros, which sounds like what? Moron, right. That's the typical word for fool or foolish in the Greek. This word is different. This word simply means one who lacks understanding. So he's not trying to degrade them or pick a fight with them. He's just saying, you are lacking in understanding. And then he says, who has bewitched you? And this word bewitched, it's the only time we see this word in the New Testament. <clears throat> Some translations say cast a spell on you or hypnotized you. So it's a deception. Paul could have said the word deception, but what he's doing with this word is pointing out that it was almost as if they had been drawn away through charm or praise or fascination by these false teachers. They had been charmed or fascinated into deceit, and we're all at risk of that today. We could become fascinated or charmed by something, by some appearance, by some personality, but it's a false teaching. And so that's what he's getting at. You who lack understanding, you, you Galatians who lack understanding, who has charmed you into being deceived or hypnotized or cast a spell on you. And then he says, before whose eyes 
Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's pointing back to basically saying, when I was with you, I always presented Christ before you as crucified. So the, the result of this deception, the result of this uh, bewitchment, this hypnotism, this spell, was that people had gotten their eyes off Christ and on something else, which we know is works. They were now focused on their works and how good they were and, ooh, have I been circumcised and have I followed the law to the letter and have I followed this or that tradition? They had gotten their eyes off of Christ and back onto themselves and their flesh and their works. And this is an important point for Paul and it's an important point for us. When the Galatians were led astray by false doctrine, they had taken their eyes off of Christ crucified. And that's in the notes. When the Galatians were led astray by false doctrine, they had taken their eyes off Christ crucified. In the same way, the goal of deception is always to get our eyes off Christ and to focus on something else. Remember Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 said, When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. So this message, the Messiah crucified, the Lamb slain for the sins of the world, this was the gospel that Paul preached, and he preached it over and over and over again until he was confident that it had sunk deep into the people so that they always saw before them Christ crucified, the Lamb slain for the sins of the world. And Paul really thought the Galatians had believed this. He had moved on from that because he was convinced that they had seen it that they had really perceived it and received it. And so he's saying here, how could you have been led astray after Christ was so publicly often portrayed before you as crucified? And then verse 2, the challenge, the only thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So now Paul is reminding them of their conversion experience. So remember, Paul and Barnabas, they went to places like Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lycaonia, Lystra, Derbe. These were all regions and uh, these were all cities in the region of Galatia. And when they went there and they shared the gospel, these people believed. And Paul's saying, when that happened, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by the law or by faith? Now here's, um, here's an example of part of that story in Acts chapter 13 this is when Paul and Barnabas are in that is they're in that region Acts 13 verse 48 this is also the time when Paul had just said um, to the Jews it was important to go to you first but now we're going to the Gentiles because you rejected the gospel we're now turning to the Gentiles that was in Galatia when that happened and then when they heard him say that in Acts 13 48 it says when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, so they believed. And then in verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they believed, then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying now, think back to that moment. Was that by faith or works? So let's do some recap here. Acts chapter 2. 
Actually, before that, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them, make disciples, right? Teach them to obey all the things. So go into all the world. But then, in Acts 1, he commands them to wait. Don't leave Jerusalem yet. Wait for what the Father's promised, which you heard from me in Acts 1. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and then you'll be my witnesses. So he says, go into all the world, but first wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Then we know the story, Acts 2, Pentecost, baptism of the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, prophecy happening, things are going crazy, people come. Peter preaches. At the end of his preaching, the men are pierced and they say, what shall we do? And Peter says in Acts 2, verses 37 and 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying this because a very important part of the gospel message was believe so you can receive the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just believe so you can get forgiveness or believe so you can go to heaven. That's in there too. Peter does say, believe, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins so that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now later on, Peter goes to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And when he's sharing the gospel with them, it says in Acts 10 verse 45, or verse 44 to 45, that they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. In Acts 10.44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So the Gentiles heard the gospel and they received the Spirit. And Peter uses that later at the council in Jerusalem when they're wondering, do Gentiles need to be, sa- or need to be circumcised to be saved or follow the law? Peter points back to saying, I saw them receive the Holy Spirit, and therefore it's by faith only. So this issue of receiving the Holy Spirit as part of your salvation experience was important and is important. It's not just an academic belief. It's not just saying, I believe these things happened. It's a kind of belief that when you grab hold of it and you're converted and you know you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into you and you sense that. You receive the Holy Spirit. So Paul can say to them, when that happened to you, notice it wasn't like an if. It wasn't something they were unsure about. He didn't say, if you received the Holy Spirit, he's basically saying, when that happened, how did it happen? Through faith or works. The point here being, if we really believe the gospel, we have received the Holy Spirit. Now, some would say there must be an outward sign to prove we've received the Holy Spirit. For example, some say that if you're saved, you must speak in tongues. That's the sign of being saved, according to some. Um, That's not true. And I'll give you a couple of things to think about. In 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul says, Do all speak in tongues? Do all do this? Do all do that? Do all do this? And that's rhetorical because not all do all those things. Not all speak in tongues. There are instances of many conversions in Acts where um, there's no mention of any outward sign. 
For example, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when Peter preaches and thousands get saved, there's no mention of any outward sign that they received the Holy Spirit. They did if they believed, but there was no mention of an outward sign. Also, when that number increased to 5,000 disciples in Acts 4, there was no outward sign. In Acts 6, when many Jewish priests converted, there was no outward sign mentioned. When the Ethiopian eunuch believed the gospel in Acts 8, again, there's no mention of an outward sign. And in Acts chapter 17, Mars Hill, when Paul preaches there, and some believe, there's no outward sign. So there is not always an outward sign that you've received the Holy Spirit. However, that's not a get-out-of-jail-for-free card on the Holy Spirit because the way Paul writes here, it's clear that they were confident they'd received the Spirit. So it wasn't like something you couldn't be sure about just because there's no outward sign. There may or may not be an outward sign, but you still should be assured that you received it. So much so that if somebody asked you, how did you receive it? You wouldn't say, I'm not really sure if I got it, to be honest. You'd say, this is how. And if they said, was it by works or by faith? You'd say, by faith. That's the point. So, okay, how does that work then? If there's not always an outward sign, how do we know if we received the Holy Spirit? And here are some of the questions in the notes. I think they're just check boxes, though. How do you know if you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, the first one is obvious, by belief. Right? It's a promise we can trust. Acts 2.38 said, If you believe and you repent, you're baptized, forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't exactly answer our question, though, I think. Because we're kind of asking it the other way around. Because like James says in James 2.19, even the devil technically believes these things are true, but he's obviously not believing to salvation. So there's a kind of believing in facts that isn't salvific. It's a different kind of believing that leads to salvation. So we're asking a different question. We're not, you know, yes, if we believe we can trust that we've received, but we're asking the question, how do we know we've received it? Or, how do we know we've believed? Because if we've truly believed, we should have received it. So is there a way we can know if we've truly believed? And not just technically believed. Not just culturally believed. Because we live in a certain area and it's comfortable because our parents believe this way. We grew up this way and we enjoy the church programs. But is it a real thing? How can we know? So, a couple of things. A change in life is a pretty good indication. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We should see change from the former life. It might not be a complete change. And with me, for example, it could be challenging because I, I really think I believed in kindergarten. I remember going forward and praying with my teacher and doing that. and I, that's, that's like ingrained in my mind when it happened. And so for me, my journey has been more since kindergarten, going through various stages of backsliding, but having faith. Yet still, there should be a change when we follow Christ, when we've received the Spirit. It should be change. And again, it might not be complete, because it is a process. Even though it's a process, though, we should sense that our life is not what it would be without Christ. 
that we would not live the same way if we didn't have this faith of ours. If you have faith in these things, but you're wondering whether your faith is real, ask yourself, would I live the same without this faith? Now, there's a popular pastor who did this. He decided to live an entire year as if he didn't believe to see how his life would be different. Guess what happened? He's no longer a believer. Because if you can imagine living a life for a year and not talking to God and not reading your Bible and not being with believers and not growing spiritually and not having that spiritual connection to Christ, if you can even imagine that, chances are you haven't received the Holy Spirit. So the changed life, it's a process, but we should sense a change that we couldn't imagine being without this because we're a new creation. Another way we can tell if we receive the Spirit, the Spirit tells us. In Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's something that we should be able to sense somehow, spiritually, that we are His. When you're a child of God, His Spirit testifies to your spirit, you're His, you belong to Him. I've been watching this Chosen thing. You started watching it too, right? The part where Mary is telling the scribe, she doesn't know who Jesus is yet, but she goes, He told me I'm His. Oh, I love that part. We're His. We, can, we know when we're His. That's a sign that you've received the Holy Spirit. Another way, fruit of the Spirit. There's things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Good job. And that's Galatians 5. We'll get there soon, so let's not give it all away. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but those are characteristics that we begin to see in ourselves when the Spirit is in us. Again, not all at once. Romans 6 through 7 makes it very clear that we're going to continue to struggle with the flesh and struggle with sin. It's not like we're never going to have issues again, but we should begin to see those characteristics in our life. Also, gifts of the Spirit. And yes, tongues is one of them. God may give you that gift, and that would be an indication that you've received the Spirit. But it's also prophecy, there's healing, there's wisdom, faith. 1 Corinthians 12 lists a whole bunch of these things. Gifts of the Spirit that the Spirit will give only to believers, so you're not going to have it if you're not a believer. So again, a sign that you've received the Spirit. And these gifts are not necessarily going to be the same all the time. There's no indication to me in Scripture that you get one gift and that's it for your life. God can give you a gift. He can give you a different gift. He can use you in a different way, depending on your context. I have experienced being able to heal people at times, but I don't have a constant gift of healing where I can walk around and heal everybody. And I pray lots for people who don't get healed. But it's happened, so the gift can come and it can go. It can be longer term. God can say, this is my gift for you for the next period of your life. He can do whatever, and we can pursue them, explore them. And these gifts are all indications that we've received the Spirit. But the main point here is, Yes, yes. You're, did I, yes, I have not healed anyone. That's very true. Thank you for the correction. That's like when, when, you know, when Peter was like, you know, why are you looking at me as if I've done something? It was God in me. Yeah, definitely. Good point. But the main point here is 
However you've experienced the Holy Spirit in your life, the truth remains that if you are a real believer, you have received the Holy Spirit, and you should not doubt that. So if somebody says to you, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? You shouldn't at all question, have I? You should say, no, I have received him. And if they say, how? You should have an answer to that question. And the answer would be, by faith. So in verse 3, Paul says, again, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? So they began by the Spirit through faith. They believed the gospel when Paul shared it. They received the Spirit. But now they're trying to be perfected in their flesh, which is by inference no longer the Spirit. If you're walking in your flesh, you're not walking in in the Spirit. So the Spirit is by faith, and they're not trying to, and they're now trying to perfect their salvation through works. It's as if they've cast the Spirit aside, and they're saying, "I don't need you anymore. My own works can do this for me from going forward." Thanks, the Spirit, for that. But I'm going to go ahead and trust in my works now. So Paul's saying, "Are you foolish? Are you really lacking in this understanding? You know you began in the Spirit. You know you received the Spirit." And now you're trying to just obey the law as if that's what you're supposed to be doing? How did this happen? And then verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So suffering, the Christians in the early church suffered a lot, as many also today suffer around the world. Um, But these churches in Galatia had likely suffered a lot. There was persecution on all sides, really. On the one hand, they were persecuted by Rome because they didn't worship Romans' gods. They didn't approve of Romans' practices. And also, Rome kept thinking these Christian movements were rebellions against their rule. So there's that. And on the other hand, you had the Jews that were persecuting them because they taught that the Jews had crucified their own Messiah. And they taught that salvation was was given out by God for free by faith without works, and the Jews didn't like that. So they had suffered on all sides persecution, and Paul's saying, you're just going to give all that up now and basically become a Jew and no longer be saved by faith and start following the law as if that's all, like, why did Christ come then? Like, you've been persecuted for these things, and now you're just leaving it all behind. It'd It'd be vanity. So I know that's about, that's about all we're going to, as far as we're going to get today, four verses. Um, I didn't want to go much further, so I really wanted to dwell on these verses and not speed past them. But what I want to do now is just kind of end with some final words about verse 3. Because this has been a very important verse to me, and I think it should be an important verse to you. It's this question. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? This verse is packed with so much meaning. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more you should return to this verse and think deeply about it. It is very easy as time goes by to begin to do things according to our ability and our flesh and no longer rely on the Spirit as time goes by. Even if we begin in the Spirit, we can easily take things into our own hands, begin to do things our own way, and over time we forget to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God may lead you in a direction. You may hear that word, respond in that call, start going in that direction, trusting in Him. And a year or two later, 
you're doing things in your flesh and you're just going through the motions and you're just, you just keep on keeping on and you've forgotten the importance of the daily reliance on the Holy Spirit. You began in the Spirit, but now you're completing it in the flesh. And so we need this reminder for ourselves every day that as time passes and we continue following Jesus, don't forget to rely on the Holy Spirit. I'm not done yet, though. Oh, because you're done? Okay. Thank you. Normally, this happens afterwards. Thank you. All right. So, the question is, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made, or are you now being perfected by the flesh? You can't be, but too often we try this. And... um, So it's a good reminder for us spiritually. Whatever God has called you, think back even, I don't know, five years ago, four years ago, what was God leading you to? Are you still in those directions? And if so, are you still relying on Him? Or have you begun to do things in your own flesh? Have you begun to rely on yourself? Or are you still daily saying, Holy Spirit, I need you to guide me today. I need you to lead me today. It's a daily thing. It's also a reminder for us as a church. It's a good time for this because... We're on the potential brink for change if all the doors keep opening. As that happens, let's keep trusting in God to guide us. It's really easy when things get more complicated to develop systems to try to solve those problems and suddenly you're very systematic and you're going through the motions and you're just trying to fill every need or solve every problem and you've forgotten to rely on the Holy Spirit. And I had a reminder this week as we were driving away from that church building Lindsay goes, ah, oh, we should have prayed together. So when we go there to do our cleaning Saturday, let's start by prayer and end by prayer. Be a good reminder that we don't just go through the motions, but we continue to rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us. And so I just want to mention two things going forward, whatever God's doing with the church, two things that... I think are important to, to God and they're important to me and I've mentioned them over the years but what God is doing in this church the first thing I want us to be about is spreading a passion for knowing God. That should, that should be pretty clear. It's all about knowing God. The second thing I've said over, over years hasn't been very relevant because we haven't had a lot of different ministries happening so I want to say it again now. I think the outcome of every ministry we do should be desiring for others to say God is great. Whether it's worship or it's teaching or it's kids' ministry or it's outreach, we want people to not think, what a cool church that is, or what a nice person that is, or what a great this, what a, we want them to think, what a great God they serve, what a great God they know. I want to know that great God of theirs that is causing them to live this way and do these things. So, spreading a passion for knowing God and how great God is in all of our ministries.